Kicks. We talk about sneakers, sneaker culture, and the people who create and consume it. Today, we're continuing on in our series called City Stories, where we highlight a city with a rich history of sneaker culture. And on today's episode, we'll be visiting Tokyo, Japan, a sneaker and street cultural hotbed for many years now and a place where sneakerheads travel from all over the world for reasons we'll get into right about now. As far as sneakers and streetwear is concerned, the beating heart of Tokyo, Japan is Harajuku in Shibuya City, a fashion district that's transformed from a rock and roll hub to ground zero of Japan's street culture scene. Harajuku is a tightly packed smorgasbord of vintage clothing shops, new and used sneaker boutiques, and brick and mortar dwellings of global streetwear giants. Take a walk around one of the tightly packed streets and alleyways off of Harajuku Street and you'll pass Atmos, Undefeated, Kicks Lab, Limited, Billy's, Sneaker Alley, Worm, as well as Supreme, Nike Japan, Reebok Classics, New Balance, Adidas Originals, Asics, and Onitsuka Tiger, all within a short walking distance of one another. A couple of streets away is Bape. Kith Tokyo, Tokyo 23, and the Jordan World of Flight store. And if that wasn't enough, not far from that is a strip that contains Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Dior, Balenciaga, and Prada. Suffice to say, if you're looking for clothing or kicks, Harajuku in Shibuya City is where it's at in the world's most populated city. But before street culture found its way onto Yura Harajuku, which means the Harajuku backstreets in English, Nike took a swing and a near miss on a brand new silhouette in their popular Air Max line. Released in 1995 and taking design inspiration from actual human anatomy, the Sergio Lozano-designed Air Max 95 was a radical new look intended to woo sneaker consumers away from basketball silhouettes and back to the runner. Nike's bread and butter before the arrival of the Air Jordan in 1985. The loud and industrial new Air Max sneaker had initially left people confused. It looked nothing like a runner, but it wasn't a basketball shoe. It had these three separate air bubble chambers in the midsole and a wavy gradient gray suede upper that was punctuated by bright flashes of neon green. When the sneaker first dropped in America, it didn't really sell. Basketball sneakers were all the rage in the mid-90s, thanks primarily to the Air Jordan line at Nike. But when the Air Max 95 dropped, it had to contend with other popular models like Charles Barkley's Nike Air Max CB34 and Grant Hill's Fila Grant Hill 1. The Nike Air Penny also dropped that year, arguably the most popular sneaker of 1995 that didn't have a Jumpman on it. Because lest we forget that 1995 was not only the year of Michael Jordan's return to the NBA, but the year he returned with a sneaker that would quickly go on to become known as arguably the greatest sneaker of all time by many pundits in the community, including MJ himself, the black and white Air Jordan 11 Concord. With all of this fierce competition, Nike taking a chance on a runner with a brand new super funky design by a new designer who wasn't Tinker Hatfield was a gamble. A gamble which, as I said, didn't seem to pay off at first. But that was in America. There were two places where the Air Max 95 did take off and took off to such an extent that in one of those places, it actually caused pandemonium. That place was Tokyo, Japan. Tokyo has long been known as a place that appreciates and lovingly curates American fashions and pop culture. Ever since the end of World War II, Japanese fashionistas would travel to America 
absorb and inhale current fashion trends and take them back to their little island where they'd reuse, refine, and reproduce them with a Japanese twist, which often meant an eye towards the future. Melding classic American garb with futuristic fashion sensibilities was precisely what drew the Japanese to the Air Max 95, a sneaker that looks both retro and futuristic at the same time. But even Japan didn't know what to make of the sneaker at first. It was initially rejected by the bigger sporting goods box stores, who were unsure what it was even fit for and therefore had no idea how to market it. But it landed in a few of the boutique sneaker shops around the city, and when it did, it hit like... Well, it it hit hard. The inventory got gobbled up quick, and within a few days, the shoe was reselling in the country for as much as three grand a pair. Japan made the Air Max 95 a high-end fashion staple, more expensive on the secondary market than Gucci sneakers or Louis Vuitton. Nike-hungry consumers traveled all over the world looking to hoard pairs to send back to the island to stock or to sell. But by that time, the 95 had caught on in America and elsewhere, and supply was hard to come by. And while the 95 would be eclipsed by the aforementioned Air Jordan 11 later that year, it kept its grip on the Japanese market indefinitely. It was so influential to Japan as a whole, and Tokyo in particular, that it's credited by some, such as Shigeyuki Kuni, owner of popular Tokyo sneaker spot Mita Sneakers, as having created sneaker culture in Japan and shaping what it's become there today. Some have even gone so far as to credit the shoe and its impact on Tokyo with Harajuku's transformation into one of the fashion and sneaker hotspots in the world. By the way, the other place that the Air Max 95 took off was London, England, where the 95 got the nickname 110s because they cost 110 pounds at the time. But unlike in Japan, who adopted the 95 as a high-end fashion staple, a certain population of Londoners adopted the kicks as an essential wardrobe piece for wrongdoing. Yes, any gang member in London who put any sort of thought or pride into what they wore while they were out doing dirt had the 95s on their feet. The shoe was such a popular accomplice, in fact, that at one point in the 90s, almost three quarters of all crime scenes in certain parts of London had Air Max 95 outsole markings in the dirt. But while Japan took its influences from America, refined and reinterpreted them, Japan in turn began to influence America. And there was no Japanese brand that became more influential in the U.S. than a bathing ape. Started by Tomowaki Nageo, otherwise known as Nigo, a protege of fragment designs Hiroshi Fujiwara, more on him later, a bathing ape was born of an obsession with street fashion, Japan's burgeoning hip-hop scene, and a countrywide obsession with the Planet of the Apes movies. A bathing ape, or bape as it's now known, started the way many street fashion brands have, by a few printed t-shirts and hoodies sold in specialty boutiques that struck a chord with the youth of the day. Bape's now iconic camouflage patterns, loud designs, and baby Milo mascot helped helped it to spread like wildfire amongst Tokyo youth, and the brand's clothing quickly became must-have pieces of wardrobe art for the fashion forward. In 2002, Bape released the Bapesta sneaker, a patent leather Air Force One knockoff that, for a while there, was arguably more popular than the Air Force One itself. Interestingly, Nike and Bape, of which Nigo is no longer a part of, are embroiled in a legal battle over several Bape sneaker designs that Nike claims the fashion brand copied from Nike without consent. 
What's strange is that the Bapsis have been around for over 20 years and Nike is just now getting around to suing them for it. I mean, Bape sneakers are still produced and sold around the world, but they in no way have the pull or popularity they did in the early aughts. Which is an interesting aspect of Bape's history and one we've seen play out again and again in these little fashion companies that could stories. We just talked about a very similar trajectory in our Supreme episode a few weeks back, but basically it goes like this. Company, in this case a bathing ape, is founded on hopes, dreams, and an ability to tap into what kids want to wear on their chests and on their feet. Company catches on, becomes must-have attire, influence spreads around the world, company is bought up by bigger umbrella company, in Bape's case the IT company, a Japanese investment firm. Bigger Umbrella Company oversaturates the marketplace with their new acquisition. Founder leaves company, company struggles to remain relevant, and the rest of the world moves on to other fashion endeavors. Bape still has its fans, but it hasn't been the Bape of old. The Bape of world domination for some time, and certainly not in the years since Nigo left the company for good in 2013 to focus on his other endeavors like clothing brand Billionaire Boys Club and sneaker brand Ice Cream, both with friend and frequent collaborator Pharrell Williams. Still, Bape had a moment, and in regards to bringing Tokyo-specific fashion to the rest of the world, Bape's moment was a historic one that will be felt for many years to come. And you can trace that moment back to one man, and his name isn't Nigo, it's Hiroshi Fujiwara. Considered the coolest man in all of Japan for an indeterminate amount of time, Hiroshi brought hip-hop to Tokyo back in the 80s when he became a DJ with an armful of vinyl records he bought in America and transplanted back to the island. Later, he was instrumental in lighting the fire that would become street fashion and culture in Japan and that would eventually birth the center of it all in Yura Hurajoku. So much so, in fact, that his Wikipedia page states that he is known as the godfather of Harajuku fashion. Today, Hiroshi is best known for his Fragment design company, and to sneakerheads, Fragment is best known for their sneaker collabs, of which there have been many, but none more popular or sought after, perhaps, than the collaboration with Nike and Jordan on the Air Jordan 1 Fragment, a sort of combo of the Jordan 1 Royal and Black toes with a small Fragment logo embossed on the side of the heel. Despite its relative simplicity, this is one of Jordan's most celebrated collaborations. The sneaker has regularly sold for thousands above retail, anywhere from three to five, a pop, ever since its release. Somewhat surprising, perhaps, considering how simplistic the sneaker is, but a testament to Fragment's less-is-more approach to design. Fragment's rich history of sneaker collaborations, particularly with Nike and Jordan brand, has included a Jordan 3, a Jordan 35, a Jordan Air Cadence, a Nike Dunk High, a Nike Dunk Low with Hong Kong's Clot, a couple of LDV Waffles with Tokyo's Sakai, an Air Force One, a Trainer One, a Roshi Run, and on and on and on. Sneaker kids of more recent generations will probably know Fragment best for their celebrated and lucrative three-way partnership with Jordan and Travis Scott on Scott's follow-up to his Mocha Air Jordan 1 colorways. In 2021, Nike, Jordan, Travis Scott, and Fragment collaborated on two sneakers, the Jordan 1 Retro High OG SP Fragment Travis Scott in both a high and a low version. Both sneakers feature Fragment's penchant for blue as well as Fragment branding to go along with Scott's signature backwards swoosh and Cactus Jack branding and of course Nike and Jordan branding rounding things off. 
These sneakers don't go for as much as Fragment's first Jordan 1 collab, but they're bo- both worth a pretty penny on the secondary market. Pennies to the tune of $2,000 plus a pop. Fragment's long history of collaborations with footwear's biggest brands is partly thanks to Nike HTM, a collaborative design group that included Hiroshi, former Nike CEO Mark Parker, and legendary sneaker designer Tinker Hatfield, venerated creator of the Jordan 3, 4, and 11, the Air Maxes 1 and 90, the Air Mac, the Nike Air Meg, and many, many others. HTM came together in 2002 and created ultra-premium sneakers, which included the best colors, materials, and design elements possible, highlighting which each partner brought to the table. The HTM partnership came to its natural end when Parker left Nike, but its influence on sneaker design and Fujiwara's close collaborative relationship with Nike carries on. The Hiroshi-Fujiwara effect can be seen and felt all over Tokyo's sneaker scene today. But Hiroshi wasn't the only Japanese designer to travel abroad, inhale Americana, bring it back to the island, and transform it into a lucrative endeavor. Homyo Hidefumi attended school in Philadelphia in the 90s, where he developed an obsession with collecting kicks, Nikes in particular. At a time when sneaker collecting was relatively rare and the community was niche, Hidefumi would travel all over the eastern seaboard sneaker hunting. He'd find Nikes for next to nothing, models that weren't readily available outside of the United States, bring them back to Tokyo and sell them at a vastly inflated price, helping to create a sneaker scene in the city in the process. This became such a lucrative side hustle with both sneakers and vintage clothing that he was eventually able to open his own shop, Chapter. One of the most fascinating facets of the Chapter story is that the shop got the attention of the people at Nike, who, realizing what Gems Chapter held, bought some of the models Hidefume hunted down back from him for their own archival purposes. Chapter was a big hit in Tokyo with locals and tourists alike, some of whom would travel all the way from America to Japan to buy stuff that they could have had a few years earlier for 10% of the price they were paying to buy it from Chapter, if only they had known where and how to look. In the year 2000, Hidefume launched Atmos in the streets of, where else, Harajuku. This time, Hidefume dedicated his business solely to selling vintage kicks from around the world. Thanks to his pre-existing relationship with Nike, Atmos was able to secure Nike as their first account. To this day, brand new sneaker shops, and many that have existed for years, beg for Nike accounts that they'll never get for one reason or another. Derek Curry, who started sneaker politics in Louisiana in 2006, mentioned in an interview that it took the shop years to get a Nike account and that they only secured one when they did through a relationship Curry developed with someone adjacent to the company. Apparently, if you want to sell Nike products in your store, it's all about who you know. And Homyo Hidefume knew Nike. His relationship with them was such that it wasn't long before he was collaborating with the brand and creating classic home run hits, particularly with the Air Max line. Bangers such as the Atmos Nike Air Max 1 Safari and the Nike Air Max 1 Elephant, both of which still resell for over a thousand bucks a pop, a series of Air Max 90s, 95s, and 97s, as well as some Dunk Lows, Air Force Ones, and Vapor Maxes. They've also started collaborating regularly with Adidas, Puma, Reebok, and Asics. They've even recently released their first collab with French sports equipment slash recent sneaker culture darling Salomon on a super clean and pretty Salomon XT6 outfitted with Atmos stars in splatter print. 
Today, Atmos has over 30 shops, not only in Japan, but in places like New York City, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia, where Hitafumi's sneaker obsession began three decades ago. In 2021, Foot Locker bought Atmos, which Atmos called a partnership to enable Atmos products to be more readily available around the world, but which was, in essence, an acquisition. But this is an ongoing theme in these sneaker tales we tell here on Roundhouse Kicks. Little guy gets bought up by big guy. Everybody rich. But Foot Locker has allowed Atmos to remain Atmos. Harajuku street fashion with a distinctly Japanese approach to design and collaboration. One of their most recent collabs was on an all-white Nike Air Max 1 with leopard print safari detailing, a callback to their first collaboration with the footwear giant back in 2002 on the Nike Air Max 1 Safari Atmos, still their most celebrated sneaker. While fragments Hiroshi Fujiwara and Atmos's Homyo Hitafume can be credited with making the fashion and sneaker mecca that is your Hirojuku what it is today, Japan's sneaker influence on the rest of the world actually dates back to a time before streetwear or sneaker culture, before Nike began supplying Japanese retailers with their very own Japan-exclusive colorways, before Nike even existed, as a matter of fact. Sneakers in Japan started on September 1st, 1949, with the creation of Onitsuka Tiger by Kihachiro Onitsuka in Kobe, Japan. The company started as manufacturer of athletic footwear for children, but quickly began supplying runners, basketball shoes, and baseball cleats to men, women, and children all over the country. Their biggest hit came with the Onitsuka Mexico 66, which featured the highway-looking tiger stripes on the side and were immortalized when they appeared on Bruce Lee's feet in his final film, Game of Death, in 1978. In 1977, Onitsuka partnered up with Japanese sporting goods manufacturers GTO, and Jelenk to form ASICS. Today, ASICS is a multi-billion dollar company that remains a mainstay in functional and fashionable sneakers and sportswear. The Gel Light 3, arguably ASICS' most popular silhouette, was released in 1991 and has garnered some of the finest collaborations to come out of Japan. Ronnie Feig and Kith have done a bunch, none more celebrated perhaps than the Salmon Toe colorway. Parisian luxury fashion boutique Colette has done one, as have high fashion mainstays Com de Garçons, which is a Japanese label headquartered in Paris and features designs by Japanese fashion legend Junya Watanabe, who also runs the Undercover, EYE, and MAN imprints, all of which have many highly regarded sneaker collaborations to their name. Sneaker boutiques like A Few and Extra Butter and popular sneaker blog Nice Kicks all have Gel Light 3s as well as does Sean Weatherspoon and Atmos, who collaborated on an all-corduroy version in 2020. Despite now being competitors, Nike and Asics actually have a fascinating history that anyone who read Phil Knight's Shoe Dog book will know. Nike began life as Blue Ribbon Sports in 1964 by Knight and his track coach Bill Bowerman. And before they made their own shoes, Blue Ribbon was an American importer and distributor of Onitsuka Tigers sneakers, a deal that was struck by Phil Knight's many trips to Japan and assurance to Onitsuka that if they sent him their shoes, he'd get them on the feet of runners and athletes in America. After a fight over the creative and distribution rights to what would become the Nike Cortez, a fight which Nike ended up winning, obviously, Blue Ribbon broke off from Onitsuka and started Nike, while Onitsuka soon after merged and became Asics. So if you're a Nike fan, you can thank Kihachiro Onitsuka for giving Phil Knight his start in the footwear business. 
While New York City may still be considered the sneaker capital of the world, in terms of sheer obsession, the sneaker fanaticism of Tokyo, Japan's connoisseurs cannot be beat. There are more lovingly curated vintage shops carrying the rarest sneakers on earth, more minimalistic boutiques selling a couple dozen of the hottest shoes of the season, and more mega stores of globally successful street culture mainstays in Tokyo than anywhere else in the world right now. There is a sneaker shop for every budget, from the barely scraping by student to the mega rich celeb. There are dozens of Japanese exclusive sneaker releases, not just from Nike, but from New Balance, Adidas, Asics, and Reebok. If you buy a pair of Converse Chuck Taylors in Japan, you will get a version of the shoe that looks the same as the ones you can get in the rest of the world, but features Japanese lettering on the back heel instead of English and are made in Japan for the Japanese. The cultural hub of Harajuku is a testament to how seriously the city takes its street fashion and sneakerheads from around the world make their way to the Harajuku back streets to experience something that they can't get anywhere else. Onitsuka may have introduced sneakers to the country and the Air Max 95 may have made them an obsession, but I'll bet if sneaker culture were to flatten like a balloon with the air let out of it in the rest of the world, it would remain alive and well in the land of the rising sun. Just ask Homyo Hidefume, who bought rare, archive-worthy Nikes that nobody wanted on America's East Coast in the 90s for $15 to $20 a pop, brought them back to Japan and sold them there for $400 a pop. And that was well before sneaker culture was even a thing. If that's not the perfect example of Japan's refined taste in sneakers, I don't know what is. Thank you for hanging out this week and talking Tokyo with me. Thank you for your time. Next week, it is that time of year, the midpoint, when we will be counting down the top 10 sneakers of 2023 so far. I hope you'll come back and join us for that. Until then, please take care of yourselves.